Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. Let's get to it. Romans chapter 8, if you have a Bible. We are working our way through what I consider the greatest chapter ever written. And uh, I don't think I'm alone in that estimation. Many uh, much smarter, wiser Christians have, have said the same thing about Romans chapter 8. So as we say always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that's in the chair in front of you. And again, if you, if you don't own a Bible, not only do we encourage you to use that Bible, open it, follow along with us, even as we, even as we read just a few verses and stare at them. But I encourage you to take that Bible and uh, let it be our gift to you and for you to, to begin to read that Bible and to, to devour the beauty that is, that is in that book. As you're finding Romans 8, you can see the page numbers there, the two different versions of the same Bible that we have that you might have in the chair in front of you. I want to just tell you that if you missed last Sunday, uh, David Baum, we, we were out of Romans 8 last Sunday, and David Baum did a standalone message on, on Galatians 4, verse 19, and the desire of Paul and and church leaders and we as Christians to see Christ formed in us in the context of David planting a church, Lord willing, in the coming year of 2015. So David and Marie Baum are going to be planting Fountain City Church. Did you gather that, that the name is now public? Fountain City Church. You can write Fountain City Church on your prayer list and be praying for David and Marie. And if you feel called, to go alongside and help them and join with that effort. We would love for you to do that, to be part of that, that team, to plant another gospel-centered, Bible-cherishing, Jesus-exalting, missions-oriented church in our city. Well, as we turn our attention to Romans 8, you think that the only British guy that I love is Charles Spurgeon. That is not true. There's actually another uh, British pastor, theologian, author that I love, He's also passed away. He's about 100 years more recent. He was a pastor in London in the mid-1900s, and his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones was famous for his meticulous exposition of Scripture. He spent years going through just one book of the Bible. He spent years going through the book of Romans. He spent years going through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's five, six, and se- Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He was famous for thorough, meticulous, measured preaching. And he was a reserved theologian and Brit. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said of these two verses that we're going to look at today, Romans 8, 12, and 13, that they are the most important verses in the whole Bible on sanctification. Now, for Martin Lloyd-Jones, the measured scholarly Brit that he was, for him to say that should cause us to take notice. This is the same man that was pastoring in London during the 1940s, during World War II, and during one of his sermons on a Sunday, the Germans were bombing London. And bombs were being dropped around his 
church there in London, and it caused the building to shake. People could hear the whistling sound of a bomb dropping next to Westminster Chapel there where he was the pastor, and the bomb would hit, and plaster would fall from the ceiling, dust would be there, and Martin Lloyd-Jones would be in the middle of a sermon, and after the bomb hit, and the dust and the plaster settled, after a pause, he would pick back up and keep preaching. And he said this is the most important verse in the New Testament on sanctification. Well, whether he's right or not, I don't know, but we're going to dive into this text. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Well, Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would help us. You have given us your holy and true word that is without air, that's been breathed out by you into and through men, and you, by your Holy Spirit, have collected it and gathered it and given it to us in our own language so that we can understand it. Your word says about itself that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and divides between even our bones and our joints and our soul and our spirit. And your word is not left alone, but it is attended by your Holy Spirit. And your spirit comes alongside your word to help us, to hear. I pray, God, that believers in this room would be encouraged and edified, convicted, comforted. I pray that unbelievers that are in this room would come to an understanding of their state, that they would come to an understanding of where they stand outside of Christ. And by your kind and rich mercies, Lord, I pray that your word would make them alive. Your Holy Spirit would give life through your word. And they would turn from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus. Do these things, I pray, Lord, not because we're doing anything right or because we're good or worthy of such fruit, but because you delight in calling people to faith in Christ. I pray that you do this for your glorious name and for our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read Romans 8, 12, and 13. So then, that's a conjunction. Other translations say, therefore. So he's summarizing an argument. We'll get to that in a second. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is... is saying something to us here. He is saying and he is taking as the Holy Spirit is is inspiring him to write this. He is laying out for us the life and death consequences of taking sin and following Christ deadly seriously. In verse 12 he says, So then, brothers, 
Again, I said just a moment ago, that's a conjunction. It's saying, because of everything that, that I've said before, we are now in a new state. We are debtors. We are under obligation, not to the remaining sinful flesh that still gnaws at us. And he stops his sentence there before he moves on into 13. But the implication is, is that we are debtors. We are under obligation now to live not according to the flesh, but according to God's Spirit, because Jesus now owns us. And he's summarizing the argument that he's made in the first 11 verses that we've looked at in Romans chapter 8. He, he started off in 1 through 4, telling us that there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So remember a few weeks ago when we looked at that, that beautiful truth, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, there's no condemnation past, present, or future. We are free because of what Christ has done. Not because we are good, not because we can follow God's holy law, but because Jesus has come and taken on the likeness of sinful flesh and has laid down his perfect obedience to the law on the cross and has absorbed God's justice and wrath and punishment for our law breaking. He puts down his law obedience on the cross as a perfect substitution for us and bears our punishment. And he rises again in victory. And now, by his grace, not because of our goodness, but by his grace, he makes us alive. He gives us his Holy Spirit that brings us back to life. And remember then, the next week we looked at how there are really only two types of people in this world. There are those that are, whose minds are set on the flesh, who are outside of Christ, and there are those whose minds are set on the Spirit. They've been made alive by God's Spirit. And so he says there's only two types of people, and the, the type of person that is not in the Spirit, that hasn't been made alive by God, is dead in their sin. They are completely unable. So that brought us to this, to this place of understanding human futility, that there's the message of the gospel is not do better, not try harder, but that if you are, if you are dead in your sin, your only hope is God who is rich in mercy, that those of us who are in the flesh cannot obey God. But God in his great kindness delights in saving sinners. And his mercy and the riches of his grace far outweigh any desire in us to follow him. And so God in his kindness gives sinners the thing that he demands from them. He gives them a new heart. He gives them faith. He gives them repentance and he makes them alive so that they can turn and trust in him. And then because he has purchased them through Jesus' work on the cross and he's given them everything that they need to now follow him, he now owns them. And they are his. They are, we are now no longer debtors to our old nature, our flesh, but we are now under joyful obligation to live out our salvation. But, if we could go back into Romans 6 and 7, we would see that even though we've been purchased by God through Jesus' work on the cross, and we've been made alive, our spirits that were dead and unable to follow Him, which are now, they've now been made alive and are, alive and are able to follow God, we still have to, dwell, have to deal with remaining sin. So think of it this way. The message of the gospel is that the penalty of sin, the penalty of our rebellion against God, has been removed 
because of what Christ has done on the cross for those that are trusting in him. But the presence, the presence of sin is still something that Christians have to deal with in these remaining years. And so then we get to verse 13 where he lays out this this command, this admonition, this exhortation, this imperative that because of what God has done for you through Jesus' work on the cross, through his perfect life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, and life-giving spirit making you alive when you were hopelessly dead in your spirit, purchasing you through his blood and work on the cross, now giving you life in his spirit. Because of that, now you must fight this remaining battle of putting to death the remaining sin that is in you. So he puts it this way in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul is is marking out for us here. He's saying that fighting sin, fighting the remaining sin that still lives in us as followers of Jesus is a matter of utmost importance. And he's saying there is a kind of living that leads to death. And there's a kind of dying that leads to life. And here's the phrase that that measured British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says is the most important phrase in the New Testament on fighting sin. That second part of verse 13. And we're going to look at that and stare at that and consider that. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul is telling us, not in order to be a Christian, but because you are a Christian, by God's Spirit, because He now dwells in you, you must, you must fight sin. You must kill, you must mortify, is the the old word that the the theologians in the history of the, the church would say. You must mortify, you must kill sin and live. So here's the question, and we're going to unpack it. And I've got six thoughts for you. And we're just going to work through strategies, aspects of grace, means of grace that God has given us to fight sin. So here's the question. How do we, by the Spirit, kill sin? How do we live out verse 13? How, by the Spirit, do we kill, mortify, the flesh. How do we as Christians who still deal with sin walk in a way that the Bible commands us to to display God's glory and live? Well, here's I think answer number one. By understanding our identity in Christ. Now, I'm not one for list, you guys know that, but I'm giving you one today, so um, enjoy it. And I, I also am not one with kind of, I, sometimes I, I, I back away from Christianese, you know, and I think sometimes we overuse statements in sort of modern American church culture, and I think one of the overused statements 
that we use or overuse phrases, phrases is this idea of identity in Christ. And it's become just kind of one of these things that we just sort of attach on. Anytime you're messing up, you just need to identi- understand your identity in Christ. And, and really, I think that becomes just kind of a, a Christianese sort of you need to like yourself better. Because Jesus is kind of almost a, almost a sort of self-esteem thing, you know, like that old Saturday Night Live skit guy that, you know, I like me. You know, it's just kind of words of positive affirmation. But, but biblically, to understand our identity in Christ means essentially that we understand the gospel. And we just, didn't, we just, didn't we just look at that? Didn't we just sort of summarize that a few moments ago? Understanding the gospel, what God has done, friends. That we were dead in our sins. There was nothing we could do. We, we could not obey God. And, and maybe, and in fact, very likely, that's where some of you are in this room. You're, you're in this place where, where you cannot obey God. Sin has dominion over you. And the good news of the gospel is not that you need to grit your teeth and bear down and do better, but that you need to, Chris prayed it so beautifully in the opening prayer during our call to worship, you need to look away from yourself and to Christ because he is the only one that has obeyed God perfectly and the message of the gospel is that when we look to Jesus as our as our hope as our savior his obedience is transferred to us our sin gets transferred to him he bears it on the cross and his obedience gets transferred to us and God makes us alive and now following Christ Being a Christian is not, as much of our culture would say, sort of an adherence to an external principle or or way of living or morality, but it is a fundamental change inside of us. It's a dead heart that's become alive. It's a spirit whose ears were deaf that that now can hear God. It's eyes that were blind that now can see Jesus. And from the inside out, there is a fundamental change from death to life. God has made us alive, and this should cause us utter humility, and it should cause us to worship God when we understand the gospel, that God is holy, that we have sinned and killed ourselves and separated ourselves from Him by sin, and that He, by His grace, has made us alive in Christ, and all those that are made alive will look to Him and trust in Him. Does it mean we're sin-free? No, but it means that we are trusting in Him. And so how do we fight? Like, how do we kill sin? How do we, how do we live out the commands of the Scripture? I think step number one is by understanding our identity in Christ, which is knowing the gospel. Friends, do, could, you, could you say this is the gospel? If you're a Christian, could you explain the gospel? And by that, I'm not saying Jesus loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. That's not the gospel. Jesus loves you, certainly. If you're trusting in him, he loves you. There's no doubt about it. And he does have a plan for your life. And it is wonderful in a sense, but maybe it means giving your life away to die on the mission field. No, the gospel is much more than that. It is that God is holy. We are fallen. Jesus is perfect. has laid down his life for us. has bore God's wrath, satisfied it. And all those that turn and trust by faith and repentance and look to Jesus and put their hope for their right standing with a holy God in what Christ has done and not in, not in themselves will be saved. Do you know that gospel? Do you know that that marks your fundamental identity? 
And don't we, friends, know that motivation comes from identity? I mean, don't we? We, we just, we, we appeal to this reasoning in our culture. Come on, dads say stuff to their kids. That's not who we are in this family. Don't you say, some of you dads have said that. I think I have said that recently. Within maybe the last week, that's not who we are. I grew up the son, I know I say this a lot, the son of a football coach, and I heard him appeal to that line of reasoning often. In fact, when I was coaching my son's football team a couple years ago, I appealed to that very same reasoning. His first year of football, he played on a team called the Cowboys. His second year of football, he played on a team called the Broncos. I was coaching that second year, and I was getting on some kids, and I was appealing to them that that's not how we do it here. Mind you, the name of the team was the Broncos, because we are Broncos. But I made the mistake to appeal to the identity of the name of the team the previous year. So I got all these little 10-year-old Broncos. That's not how we do it here on the Cowboys. I mean the Broncos, or whoever. Go hit somebody. Get out of here. <laughs> but don't, don't, we, don't we appeal to that sense of identity as being a motivation for how we act? And that's exactly what the scriptures teach us as well. So by understanding our identity in Christ, by knowing what God has done, it has fundamentally changed. Friends, Christianity is not just some moral principle or Western ethic. It is the glorious good news of how God has made dead sinners alive in Christ and has owned them for his glory to display his surpassing worth to a world that he has created. That's who you are if you're a Christian. And sin no longer has dominion over you. You are owned by Jesus and not that habit. Know that, dear Christian. It's your, the fundamentally, the truest thing about you is not that you are struggling with this, but that you've been made alive by Christ and now you are fighting against that. I love that I'll quote by another British theologian, William Arnault, another British pastor, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. His name is William Arnault, and he said that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded remaining sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking sin's side against a dreaded God. Secondly, God gives us the gift and means to fight sin and mortify it and kill it, he gives us the gift of repentance. This theological, all-important word, repentance. It means to change our mind, to turn away from sin, to turn away from self-trust, to turn away from the deeds of the flesh, and to turn towards obedience in Jesus. Martin Luther, the great German monk, who became the leader and the spark that God used to ignite the Protestant Reformation. The match that he used to light that Reformation was this list of 95 uh, things or theses or arguments that he had against the doctrine of the Catholic Church at that time. Some of them were honestly a bit goofy and not quite right, but God used this document to be the thing that kind of lit the match of the recapturing of the gospel in the church at that time. Listen to number one and number three on his lists, list of, of thesis against, the points against the doctrine of the church at that time regarding repentance. Martin Luther 
got these two definitely right. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus said, Repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So friends, don't think that repentance or turning away from sin to trust in Christ is just a a one-time sort of altar call, prayer of salvation aspect. No, it is the entire life of a Christian is to continually be turning away from the deeds of the body, from the things that draw us away from God, and to continually be looking to Jesus. And the third of that list of 95, he said, that yet its meaning is not restricted to repentance in one's heart. For such repentance is null unless it produces outward signs in various mortifications of the flesh. So what is he, what's he saying there? Let me translate that into modern English. He's saying that if we're sorry in our heart continually for sin, but it doesn't produce any actual fruit in our lives, any outward fruit, then it's null and void. So, so we can't say that we're Christians if we just kind of continually fall into the same sin over and over and over again and there's no fruit in our life. It doesn't mean that Christians won't struggle with sin. Maybe for a long time and, and, and deeply, God knows I have and do still. But it means that there will be some measure of progress that our growth in Christ will produce in us some outward sign of mortification of the flesh. Paul puts it this way and says, let's not believe this because Martin Luther says it. Let's believe this because the scriptures say it. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 and he's contrasting true repentance versus this sort of worldly human-centered repentance. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 10, for godly grief, it's like true God-wrought repentance for our remaining sin. He says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I think there's a way that we can sort of think that we're being Repentant, repentive. It's really just kind of self-centered, self-absorption. Understanding the gospel means we understand the holiness of God and the dreadfulness of sin. And then it produces in us a sort of God-wrought sorrow, not because we've been caught or because we are now living a life that was less than what we had hoped for, but because we, in our sin and remaining deeds, we... We besmirch, we offend the beauty and the satisfaction of a holy God. Oh, that God would give us a posture of lifetime repentance as a gift for killing the flesh in us. Thirdly, God gives us the gift of his word. Friends, this goes without saying, doesn't it? It's so important. I hope you notice that we are a a word-centered church We want to read God's word. We want to pray God's word. We want to sing God's word. And then we want to preach God's word. We want to teach God's word. And we want to respond to God's word as the Holy Spirit comes alongside God's word and gives illumination to it 
and makes it alive in our hearts. Listen to the testimony of the scriptures about itself. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. In the New Testament, James says this about the Word of God, an incredibly powerful passage about the Word of God. He says in chapter 21, or chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, listen to this, the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. It's able to preserve and keep you, James is saying. So God has given us his, his Bible. And friends, listen, this is, if you're bracing yourself right now and you're saying, okay, this is the point in the sermon where the pastor beats us up for not reading our Bible enough. Okay? That, that's not what this is. Okay? Th- this is the point in the sermon where I, I, I exhort myself and you to bite into the, the beautiful banquet of God's word. For, for you to see, for you to be wooed by the, by the beauty of, of God's word. For, for us to long for it. For us to, to long for and demand a church that is, that is built on God's word. And for us to long for and, and demand homes and marriages and, and parenting relationships that are built on God's word. For us to, to demand from our own souls uh, personal lives that are built on, on God's word. And, and for us to, even now, like even as I'm speaking, like even now that the Holy Spirit would be, would be speaking to a, a young man or an old man or, or somebody in this room who's, who's, who's got very loose threads and connections to God's word, that, that even as I'm speaking, that the Holy Spirit today, today would anchor in your soul and would produce in your heart a longing and a love and a strategy for taking in God's word. And that, and that today you would resolve, you would resolve to, to get up 10 minutes earlier and to begin a plan to take in God's word slowly but surely. Or that you would cut out that 30 minutes on the end of your day, giving your mind to some mind-numbing, sarcastic, cynical, worldly sitcom, and that you would cut that out, and by the Spirit you would kill that, you would cut it off, and that you would put in your day and in your life a, a regular intake of God's Word. And it wouldn't be some sort of legalistic law for you. No, 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 not because the preacher beats you up on Sunday, but because God right now, by His Spirit, would do what we cannot do. He would produce in us a, a longing, a taste, a craving, a, a, a salivation for His Word. That He would do it right now. Right now. Like, that's my prayer. Like, right 
now God would work in your heart this longing, this taste, this desire that metaphorically speaking, the, the mouth of your soul would water for the thing that gives you life. Right now, right now, young man that, that is struggling with pornography, right now that God would work in your heart that desire. Right now, right now. Oh God, make us a word-centered people. If you want to sit down with one of the pastors of this church and just consider your life and think about Bible reading strategies, we would love to do that with you. And it's not just limited to the pastors. I mean, there are Christians in this room who would love to sit down with you and help you engage that. The fourth means of grace, gift that God has given us to help us fight sin is he's given us one another, hasn't he? He's given us community. He's given us the local church. Listen to, listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And just imagine, like we're so, let's just confess something. We're so terrible at this as Americans because we are so stinking busy flittering off to one inconsequential activity to another. We're just, we're just busy, right? We just, I mean, don't we all just find ourselves looking at our watch, our smartphones, because we've got to go somewhere. Where? We don't know, but we've got to go somewhere. Right? Don't we? We're just the most distracted people maybe in the history of civilization. And everything in our culture is fighting against us getting together to encourage one another. Right? We, we build out these platforms, social media now. Now we sit alone in rooms in front of a computer and we judge one another rather than get together in larger rooms with one another and love one another and forgive one another, encourage one another. We isolate ourselves and judge one another. And listen to what Paul says about how we should live together in a way that helps us fight sin, mortify the flesh. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, friends, what would it look like if a local church like Crosspoint, if the membership of a, a church like Crosspoint like really just, desired, just d- decided to grab a hold of this verse and just, just, just insist that we all graciously live this way, what would it look like? Imagine a place, friends, where you could go you could walk into a room of hundreds of people and there was just this gospel-saturated, Holy Spirit-fueled freedom. Like it was, it was a place where you could let your guard down and you could be honest with people sitting around you because you know that they are not there to critique or judge or compare, but to love and encourage and come alongside because they are walking into the room with the same sort of gospel-centered vulnerability. 
Friends, what would that look like? How beautiful would that place be like? And, and I'm not beating this up. I think we're, we're pursuing that. But I'm, I'm encouraging us as a, as a church to prioritize that, to fight for that, to get through awkward moments. Come on, community and meeting Christians is hard and it's awkward because Christians are weird. We're the goofiest, most awkward most socially inept cats on the block. And pushing through awkwardness and getting deeper, listen to me, men, getting deeper than a discussion about 19-year-old boys running around in tight pants chasing a dead pigskin, getting past that is somehow strangely the hardest thing in the universe for some of us. Why? Because if we do it, pushing past that is a treasure trove of God-centered grace. And embracing that awkwardness and toughening up a little bit and going to a community group and staying after, not rushing out of here, meeting somebody, inviting somebody to your house. Loving somebody, preferring to get outside of your demographic and caring for people that are not like you, who sometimes you will sit in a room awkwardly pushing through that, friends. Why is that so difficult? Because our enemy, the devil, knows and our flesh instinctively knows that on the other side of that is a treasure trove of beauty in life. And, and so, so another thing I'm praying for is that God would just would just like sink into our hearts like this radical commitment to one another. Not to the exclusion of the world, friends. No, I'm not talking about us being some sort of inbred, sort of, you know, strange little group of Christians who doesn't care about the world. No, when Christians start acting like this towards one another, oh, friends, do you know that they become actually a beautiful aroma to an onlooking world? And there's a freedom in that that draws people to Christ as we literally become the church. Friends, God has established the church and the way they do life together as his primary means of evangelism to an onlooking world. Do you know that? Number five. By effort. So let's read verse 13 again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. There's this emphatic imperative, and it's, it's pointing at us as Christians. We must do something. Understanding where our effort and the necessity of our effort in salvation comes in, I think is essential to a healthy Christian life. Because we fall off on, on one of two ditches, I think. We either think that we wrongly understand the gospel, and we think that we can be made right with God by our own effort, and so we strive and strive and strive to be made right with God because of what we are doing, because of our effort. Friends, that's not the gospel, that's legalism. Remember, we just talked about that nothing in us can commend us to God, that he makes us alive, and we are made right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
not because of our own efforts and works. But then the other ditch that we sometimes fall off on is that, well, because God has done it all and made me right through Christ's work on the cross, I was dead, he made me alive, he gave me his spirit, I'm now his, now there's really nothing I can do, so let me just kind of coast for these next 40 or 50 years. Friends, that's not legalism, that's falling off onto the other side of the ditch, that's just spiritual laziness. So we're prone to one ditch or the other. Legalism on one side, where we think that we have to do it to make ourselves right with God, which isn't understanding the gospel. And the other side is laziness, thinking that there's really nothing for us to do. But when we understand the gospel rightly, we understand that the gospel is a call to because, not so that if you do these things, you will be right with God, but because God has wrought these things, has done these things, has accomplished this, now because of that, you must live in this way. Do you see that? Legalism is trying to obey God to win his favor. Laziness is not taking seriously the commands of God. But spirit-empowered, word-centered effort is the way that God calls us to live for His glory. Listen to what Paul says. And let's see if we can call Paul a legalist. I don't think we can. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Listen to what Paul says here. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run, like put in an effort that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Listen to verse 25. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is saying that he's using this analogy of physical training in athletes, not saying that we should all go run marathons, but he's using it as an analogy, saying that being a Christian and living for God requires us to discipline, to to put to death the deeds of the body, to put forth an effort. One more verse from Paul. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Very well-known verse. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider myself... I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here that we should strive and strain to live out who we already are. Is there any strive or strain in your relationship with God? Or have you become lazy? Now let the Holy Spirit convict us and change our hearts in that way. Friends, I actually think that uh, laziness is a far bigger problem in our circles than legalism. I do. I just I think it is. 
been a far bigger problem in my life. I know that much. And sixth, and we'll wrap it up with this. And I think this is all important. This is a paradigm that we've just got to see. We kill sin. We mortify the flesh by the Spirit by pursuing joy. I want us to see that the Bible calls us to put our fight against sin and our pursuit of God not in the context of begrudging obedience, but in the context of pursuing true, real joy. I think one of the the great lies that is perpetrated in the American church is this sort of non-gospel fundamentalist idea that that to pursue God in his life and to fight sin is a sort of killjoy sort of existence. It's like a begrudging life that, you know, we've got to tuck in our shirts and comb our hair and be good little boys and girls and, 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 and that there's really good stuff out there that we wish we could do, but God is kind of like this mean grandpa up there who doesn't want the kids to, you know, God is kind of like that guy in Dennis the Menace. Get off my lawn, Right? And we kind of know because, you know, we grew up in a Christian family that we really want to get to heaven. And so we just kind of have to endure this begrudging, angry God. And we have to sort of have a a clenched fist, teeth gritting obedience to him. But really, if we were honest, there was a bunch of stuff out there that we're missing out on and we wish we could do because that's where real joy is. But, you know, we kind of believe in heaven and we understand it all. And I mean, who wants to burn in hell forever? So we're just going to kind of hold on here, right? And that becomes kind of the motivation for a lot of, dare I say, southern Bible Belt Christians. When the Bible will have nothing of that motivation. Listen to this. This is, this is Moses in, in Hebrews. Uh, the great hall of fame of, of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to Moses' motivation for fighting sin and pursuing obedience to God. Moses, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Oh, friends, there's so much going on in that text. I mean, that could be a a message all in itself. But what that's saying is, is that Moses... In the spirit, because God gave him his grace, because God made him alive and gave him a heart, Moses saw that this world and its passing pleasures is like a counterfeit joy. And there is something to long for in God, in Christ, which is better by far. And he fought sin by pursuing the greater joy, the true joy of obeying God. So do you see that? He fought the lie of counterfeit joy 
by longing for the greater joy. So friends, if we see this principle, if we see this, it will transform our motivation. Fighting sin is not saying no to stuff that we really want to do so that we can grit our teeth and make it to heaven. No, fighting sin is pursuing the greater joy as we say no to counterfeit joys. Friends, this has all sorts of applications, doesn't it? We say no to earthly whatever that we know is broken and never satisfies because we know that God ultimately will in Christ. We say no to sin and flesh and lusts and covetousness and idolatry because we know that they are fleeting counterfeit joys that lie to us. And God calls us into this fight against sin not so that we would give up joy, but that we would pursue true joy in him. Oh, what a thought. So why is this all so important? Well, as Paul has put here, our lives depend on it. I don't think that means that a Christian can lose their salvation, but I don't think Christians should assume that because they've confessed or recited a prayer that they're okay with God. Our lives depend on it. We must live out our salvation. Where there is no fruit in our life, there's no root of grace. True Christians will, to some degree, bear fruit of sanctification in their life. And God has chosen to use the imperative, the command of Scripture, to be one of the means by which he brings this about in our life. And God has chosen to display the beauty of his grace through his bride that's that's striving in this way, through individual Christians that are radically committed to his word and to one another, who have this grace-filled, vulnerable, word-centered, Jesus-exalting culture together. He has chosen to display his beauty to an onlooking world through how we as Christians fight sin and live together. What a privilege. What a privilege. What a beautiful privilege. Let's long for this, church. Let's long for this. When I was a little boy, um, I lived on Winsley Avenue. Fifth and Winsley, my parents still live there. On Sixth Avenue, down the street, there was a house with a fence. And it had this huge German shepherd. I nicknamed him Cujo, because he was the size of, this dog was about the size of a horse. And I had a paper route. And every day I would drive, I'd ride my bike by that fenced-in yard. And because I was a kind of an ornery little kid, I would tease this little fire-breathing dog, right? Sometimes I would run one of the newspapers along the fence as the dog jumped off the porch and chased me, and he'd stick his little German shepherd snout through the fence. But he couldn't get to me because the fence was down, right? And uh, anyway, I, I baited this dog for about a year. One day I was driving my bike, riding my bike by with a bag full of like this bag of newspapers that I'd folded up to go through other papers on my paper out a few blocks away wasn't paying attention I looked up I was right near that house and the fence was down 
they were replacing the fence, and Cujo was on the porch. <laughs> oh my gosh. And this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, and they used to have these things called banana seats on a Schwinn bike. I had a Schwinn with a banana seat. I got up on that. I mean, I, was, I had a paper in my hand. I was getting ready to beat Cujo off. Cujo, that really wasn't his name, but that's what I called him because it was a movie of a rabid dog back in the 80s. And Cujo came off of that porch, and he was coming for me. He was bounding. And that dumb dog, right when he got to where the fence was, stopped by the grace of God. (laughs) And, I mean, I was standing up on my banana seat, and Cujo was barking at me, and I was... What just happened? (laughs) Friends, sin has no dominion over us anymore. The fence has been torn down. We are free to follow God, not be enslaved to captivity to our flesh that destroys The fence has been torn down. So by God's grace, by the Spirit, let's jump off of that porch and run in free obedience to God for the glory of His name and for the eternal joy of our souls and for the witness of the gospel to an onlooking world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there's so much in my life that I need to fight. God, thank you for making me and many of my friends in this room alive. Recalibrate our understanding of who we are in Christ. Make us quick and lifelong repenters. Give us a hunger for your word and give us a longing for true community that goes beyond the weather and sports. And Lord, give us, give us joy in our pursuit of you. Give us joy. Sin has no claim on us. We are not obligated to it anymore we are now obligated to you but whereas we were slaves to sin and it was a it was a cruel taskmaster we are now slaves to you and you are a rich joyful loving father God work that into our hearts work that into the life of this church bring faith to my friends in this room who haven't trusted in you Give them repentance. Give them eyes to see. Give them faith. Give them a longing for Christ and his beauty. God, let them turn away from sin and turn in faith to Jesus. Even now, even now, Lord, make them alive. Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy.
in Jesus' name.